Well, for the season of Lent, we're going to be working through maybe a, a book of the Bible that uh, we think we, we kind of know pretty well, and hopefully being able to see it in, in a new and different way. It's the, the story of Jonah. Uh, and most of us know uh, the story. It's Jonah and the... Uh, yeah, I, I guarantee you almost can say that to anybody, and they'll be able to know what that is. What we're going to find out, that it has very little to do with a whale. Has very little to do with a fish, but we're going to get into that a little bit. So we're going to start with the book of Jonah, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we'll read that here this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Jonah, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the best stories ever told, at least from my perspective and maybe my generation, is the story of Star Wars. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody agrees with the twists and the plot lines and everything that happens in this great long story that encompasses all kinds of, of movies and, and comic books and books and, and, and uh, TV shows. Uh, I especially have a, a particular... Um, can you use the word hate in church? A particular dislike toward Jar Jar Binks. But other than that, uh, we can maybe move on. I should probably get over it. Um, but there's something about this overall story. The characters. And then this underlying battle that's going on in every single one of these, uh, these books and movies. About light and darkness. And that rings true for so many people, so many people, this battle between light and darkness that just pervades the whole Star Wars uh, series and, and, uh, and kind of story connect. And one of the characters in this story where light and darkness kind of, it kind of, uh, kind of comes to the fore is in this character, Master Yoda. And the reason why uh, it has so much because it's, it's Master Yoda, and Master Yoda teaches his disciples how to be in the light, how to use the force for good and not for evil. You can imagine that there's a force, right? There's the good and there's the evil. There's the light and there's the darkness. And we all know about the darkness, right? Darth Vader was given over to the dark side. Well, it's no wonder that when a new series that was set in a, this Star Wars kind of universe storyline called The Mandalorian was coming out, that people like me got super excited. There's a new story. There's something coming out. There's this kind of this piece of the story. I was super excited about it. And I remember uh, that first episode, I remember watching it, and I couldn't watch it on my TV. I don't watch it on my iPad. Um, I, had, I, had, I had Verizon Wireless as my, um, my uh, carrier, so I got free Disney Plus for a year. I actually put on my calendar, take, make sure you take off Disney Plus, because, you know, they get you every year coming around. But now I'm probably going to keep it. 
anyway, and my actually, so uh, we'll move on from that. But this story starts out with this guy, the Mandalorian. This character is a bounty hunter. And this bounty hunter is given uh, the opportunity to go after the big prize, the big bounty. And this bounty is going to be extremely, uh, uh, kind of give him a, a big, a, a stream wealth, but it's also going to be really, really hard to get. And he ends up, at the very end of the first episode, the bounty ends up being... Baby Yoda. <laughs> now, if you have not heard of Baby Yoda, I'm sorry. There's something wrong with you. I don't know what's going on. My wife, who does not enjoy Star Wars at all, once she found out that there was a Baby Yoda, she is all in, which is probably why we're keeping Disney Plus, right? I blame it on her. She even wants the new baby Yoda for Christmas coming up this next Christmas. She couldn't buy it this Christmas. But it's an amazing thing that happens in our human collectiveness. These stories keep repeating themselves over and over and over again. The story of light and darkness continue to repeat themselves in all these different ways, light and darkness. Now, no matter how excited Star Wars fans get, no matter how jacked up they are about it, no one actually really believes that Star Wars ever happened in real life. Not even the people that go to these conventions and dress up like all the characters. They really don't believe that Star Wars happened in real life. Star Wars is not historical. Sorry, if you haven't heard that before, Star Wars didn't happen in real life. It's a fictional story. Now, no matter how many people want it to be real, it just isn't. But the reason why it's captured a lot of our imagination is because what it does. Star Wars is a true story, not because it happened in history. Star Wars brings its truth because it happens to you and I in everyday life. Let me say that again. Stories like Star Wars, big stories, epic stories, are not true because they happened in history, but because they happen to us over and over and over again. Every single one of us knows what it's like between the battle, the battle between light and darkness. We've been to the mountaintop, but we've also been to the deepest, dark places in our souls. And we know what that feels like. Now, as we lean into the story of Jonah, I want to let you know how I engage in this story. As a little kid, I engaged in this story as if Jonah really happened in history. Like, a, like, you know, a little kid thinking that Star Wars actually happened in history. But the way I engage Jonah now as an adult is I don't engage it as it was, is true because it happened in history. I engage it because it happens to us over and over and over again. 
The story of Jonah is true because it happens to us. And these themes have happened to people for generations, for thousands of years before us, and will continue to happen thousands of years after we're gone. This is why this story has lasted these thousands of years. And so as we engage the story of Jonah, I'm doing this large preface on this because it's important for us to have an adult conversation around how we read Scripture. The reality of it is most of us, when we were done with either Sunday school or confirmation, we walked away from walking through Scripture in a critical way. Why? Because we didn't have to. And so for many of us, we are stuck with a Sunday school level uh, understanding of the Bible. And for many of us, we're stuck with the Sunday school level of understanding the book of Jonah. And so what that does to us is we look at this book of Jonah, and we know Jonah and the whale, and we think it's only about this whale. And we come up against the entire modern scientific uh, scientific. Uh, knowledge base around there is no possible way that a human being could be swallowed by anything large enough to live in the Mediterranean Sea, much less live in its belly for three days and then get spit up on a beach. And so for a lot of us, what we do is we look at that story and we're like, ah, that ah, throwing that out doesn't have anything to say with me or to do with me. And that approach severely limits our understanding of what Jonah, the the story, is actually trying to tell us. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we lock in so deep into that this was actually happened in historical fact that we start making up all kinds of things to make it happen. As if God's honor is at stake. And we start seeing scholars come up with, well, the fish that live in the Mediterranean Sea, of course, none of them would be, but there was this wayward sperm whale that showed up on the coast of Palestine. Sperm whales don't live there. But they make up all kinds of excuses to think, okay, this is how it could happen, as if God's honor is at stake. The book of Jonah is not about God's honor. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this book as it was written and what, was it in, what it was intended to do. I'm not going to get into argument over fiction or nonfiction. What I do want to be able to do is to unpack this in a way that makes sense for you and I as a Western American in 2020. So what we're going to try to do is put this into context The book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is a Jewish story. It's not an American story. It's not a Western story. It's a Jewish story that appeared around 400 or 500 BCE. It was written in Hebrew. It was written to particular people during a particular time whose themes just happened to be understood by lots of different people in lots of different times. That's what makes the story of Jonah so powerful. That's what makes it a great story. And so for you and I over these next several weeks, 
we're going to come to the story like a Jewish rabbi would. Now, here I want to let you know, I'm not a Jewish rabbi. Not. Sometimes I wish I was, but I'm not, especially when we're dealing with the Old Testament. I am, was born in Iowa. I'm a West, my brain is a Western brain. If you, if you understand the Eastern world and the Western world, actually our brains think very differently than one another. We see the world in very different ways. And so do our, uh, 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 our pastors and our religious systems. We read the Bible very differently. In the Western world, most of us grew up reading the Bible as a, si- a, a system of uh, propositions. We've been told that this book is an encyclopedia. It's a reference book that everything in there is true, and all we need to do is go read it, and we'll find out every answer there is to know about the world. The Eastern Christian church and, and where the, the Eastern reality, where the, the Jewish uh, kind of mindset comes from, looks at Scripture as a word that continues to give truth over and over again. This is exactly what, uh, uh, what a Jewish rabbi talks about. Now, I don't know him, but we'll, we'll name drop him a little bit. This guy's name is Rabbi Uriel Simon, and he writes, a generation that shirks its duty of reinterpretation is shutting its ears to the message that the Bible has to offer. Right away, for a lot of us, we're taught, use the word reinterpretation. Whoa, 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 wait a second. We're Christians. We don't need to reinterpret anything. We've been told what everything means. The Jewish mindset and the rabbis tell us that each generation has an opportunity to reinterpret that the Bible, this word, has more to offer to us. He continues, the gates of exegesis, which just is a fancy word for study and understanding how to interpret Scripture, are not shut and never will be. Each generation has its own special key which corresponds to tone of the 70 facets of the Bible. Now, for you and I, this is made for, it might be new news, and you may be freaking out right now going, okay, maybe you're not going to be here Monday, Pastor Paul. I know what, I'm gonna be, what, I've, what I've said to you may disturb some of you. You may be struggling with that. You may be even starting to get a little bit upset. And I want you to know that's okay. I want you to know that's okay. I've been there. I've been frustrated. I've been upset. I've been in those places where I've been like, you've been telling me this my whole life, and then there's a different way to look at it? That was very upsetting to me. So I've been there. It's okay. Let it sit. We're going to talk about letting it breathe in a minute. So we have this word of reinterpretation. And then you're talking about 70 facets of the Bible. 70 facets of the Bible? Isn't there only one way to look at Scripture? Well, the Jewish understanding is that there's way more than one way to look at Scripture. They actually use a phrase called turning the gem. If, you, if, if you're married and you have a, a, a ring on, uh, or if you have a, a class ring on, if you look at a gem, if you look at it through a certain way, it looks one way, Right? Turn that gem just a little bit, and you get a different view of the exact same gem. It's not a different gem. It's not a different stone. But you've just turned it just a little bit. 
And so our Jewish brothers and sisters talk about the 70 facets of the Bible and that there are a lot of different, say, facets or faces of every single line in Scripture. That 70 different times you could turn that same line in Scripture and the Word of God will speak to you. That Word of God will create more depth. And this is one of the ways that they do that. They look at it through Peshat. Look at a verse and go, what's the plain, simple meaning? There's, there's nothing to read into it at the moment. Just start out with the plain, simple meaning. No mystery here. Just what does it mean? Sit with that for a while. And then they move into Remez, the allegorical, metaphorical meaning. Now, many of us read Scripture, and of course, we look at a lot of things and go, what do you mean allegorical and metaphorical? This, it can't be the case, Right? Well, there is a lot of allegory. There is a lot of metaphor. God is love, right? We see that over and over and over in Scripture. There's a lot of allegorical and metaphorical meaning. Why? Because you and I connect to allegory. We are human beings. We see and understand metaphor and allegory, and it speaks something deep into our lives. And then the, sec- the, the third piece down is derash. What is this scripture text trying to help us understand in terms of our m- moral or, edu- or educational meaning? Where's the deeper look at that? And then the last one, which is very Eastern and very Jewish, it's sod. What's the mystical meaning behind it? And you know what? When you put mystical hidden meaning, it means that you and I may walk this entire life and never fully understand can we be okay with that? We struggle with that as Western uh, people, especially Americans, because everything has to have an answer. Everything has to have an answer. What if the answer is, it's a journey. And maybe the journey is more important than the actual answer in the end. Maybe we learn more about ourselves wrestling with something hidden or wrestling with something mystical than actually just someone giving us the answer. That's deep. That's hard work. But most of us, I would say, I certainly wasn't. I didn't grow up this way. I grew up with this is what this is, this is what this means, and if you don't agree with it, guess what? There's the door. Or you better repent and change your mind and begin to think the way I think. That's the way I was raised, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the way a lot of us were. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to treat this text the way that it was supposed to be treated. We're going to let this text breathe for us. Now, I've never had enough money in my life to justify buying a really, really good bottle of wine where you open the top and you're supposed to let it breathe. I just haven't done that. I just, you know, I have a screw top. I don't know if you let screw top wine breathe. I don't know, right? But this is what we do with Scripture. We open it up and we let it breathe. Let it have some space. Let us sit with it for a while. Let's pour it out. Let's let it 
move. Let's let it do what it's intended to do instead of rushing into it with the idea and the, the assumption that we already know what it's supposed to mean. That we already know how to handle the text. So what I'm hoping to do is through these weeks of Lent is when we deal with this very Jewish text of Jonah, that we deal with it with tenderness and care and then see what happens to us. And I'm expecting some pretty amazing things. I'm already far out enough ahead that I'm already like, this is why this sermon's going to take so long. So let's start with the book of Jonah. It was written about 400 or 500 BCE, and it's a prophetic book. It's part of the prophetic canon. It belongs with Jeremiah and Isaiah and Obadiah and Amos. It actually fits in between Obadiah and Amos in the prophetic canon. But one of the things that's different about Jonah than all the other prophets is that Jonah gets a word from God, and Jonah does not reply. Every other prophet, God comes to them and says, Jeremiah, I want you to go and do X, Y, and Z. Isaiah, I want you to go X, Y, and Z. Amos, Hosea, I want you to go do X, Y, and Z. And all of them say, no way. I'm not doing it. You know why they say no? Because it's hard. And they know who they're supposed to go uh, prophesy to, and they don't want to do it. No sane person gets a word from God that's that tough and that hard and immediately says, yes, I will go to the king and I will tell him that he's screwing it up. No one wants to do that. No one signed up for that. And so they immediately verbalize to God. There's a verbal response to God that says, no, I don't want to do it. And then they relent. Jeremiah calls it, his bones are burning. He can't not go. Well, Jonah doesn't say anything. If you notice, a word comes to Jonah, and what does Jonah do? Doesn't reply, doesn't say, oh God, I can't do this. He just says, and walks away. Doesn't respond at all. The other thing that's different about Jonah and the other prophetic texts is that typically the word that comes to the prophet comes later on in their story. You get a little bit, you get to little, uh, know a little bit more about uh, the prophet. You get to know the context, the history, where they are. You get to know kind of the problems that are going on. And then, boom, God comes in and calls them. Jonah is different in that other way as well, is that it's right away. He's called right away. There's no response other than a nonverbal response to walk away. It's almost like the popular culture talk to the hand, right? So if it's so different from the other prophetic texts, what could we compare Jonah to in Scripture? Well, the closest Scripture text or closest book of the Bible that we can compare to is another book that starts with a J. Anybody want to shout it out? Job, not Job, Job. And we read the story of Job, right? Job is this very faithful person, very faithful. And God and Satan play this game with this faithful person. God says, go ahead, Satan. Try to make Job unfaithful. 
And if you know the story of Job, it is bad. It is terrible. It almost makes you want to know, God, why'd you give him up like that? Why'd you do that? Everything that could poss- the bad that could possibly happen to any human being happens to Job. Now here's the amazing thing about the book of Job. There isn't a single scholar that in the history of scholarship that thinks Job happened in history. There isn't a single scholar that thinks that Job was an historical event. Everybody knows that the story of Job is a parable. Much like the Good Samaritan. None of us read the Good Samaritan and believe that that actually happened in history. Actually, Jesus is using it as an example because it doesn't happen in history, right? The Jewish people were not being Good Samaritans. So let me tell you how you're supposed to be by telling you a story of how you should be. The same thing is for the book of Job, and the same thing is for the book of Jonah. But for some reason, we have locked in to this story and treat it as an historical story that actually happened in history versus the parable that it really is. Jonah is not true because it happened. Jonah is true because it happens to you and me in our lives. Now again, if you're like going... Uh, we need to talk, Paul. I'd love to. I'd love to be in dialogue with you. I'd love to talk this through, walk this through, so that you get a sense of the deeper, more richer meaning that, that the writer of Jonah is trying to give. I'd love to have that conversation. So I, if, if you have that, please talk to me. Let's have a conversation about it. So let's start where Jonah starts. The very first three verses of Jonah. Where does it start? Well, one of the more perplexing realities that human beings have about God is kind of dealing with the concept of where is God? Where is God? Early on in Scripture, we see that God disappears for several hundreds of years. The Israelites are in captivity and God's nowhere for three, four, five hundred years. Where is God? The people cry out. Moses frees them. Where do they go? They go to where God is. Where is God? God's on a mountain. God provides a place for them to see, a place for them to go. They go to the mountain. They get the Ten Commandments. And then God says, you know what? You are a people that move around. Guess what? I want you to build me a tent. And I want you to put it in the middle of your community so you never have to wonder where I am ever again. I'm in the middle of the community. I am with you. And whenever you pick up and travel to the next place, set me up and I'm there with you. God has a house. And one of the reasons why that we kind of have that imagination is because we feel that God's somewhere somewhat like us. We want to have a place to dwell. We want to have a place to be. God is considered to have lots of different human attributes, right? The, the reason, one of the reasons why there was sacrifice of animals and grains is because we figured God wanted to eat something. 
He even says in Scripture that when you did have these sacrifices over this open flame, that the aroma was pleasing to God. Now, just to let you know, I'm trying to eat less meat in my diet because it's maybe going to help me be a grandpa later on in my life, and I want to do that. But there's nothing more pleasing to me than smelling smoked meat barbecue. And that's what a sacrifice is. It's meat over an open flame. So of course God's going to go, oh yeah, I got that going. Give me a slice of that brisket. Here we go. Right? And so we've imagined God in all kinds of places. God then moves from the tent to the temple where people can come. A fixed place where God's always going to be. And then finally, God moves into a human form in Jesus. God in Jesus becomes that, that touch, that flesh, that bone, that thing that we can see and be with. And then after Jesus is ascended, what's left? What do we get? The Spirit. The Spirit of God is with you and me. And we compare the Spirit to the wind, to breath, to air, everywhere. God is everywhere. But that doesn't sit so well with human beings, right? Because if God is everywhere, that means God is everywhere we are, and we don't want God to be everywhere we are. We don't want God showing up at our house unannounced, right? We don't want our neighbors showing up unannounced. We don't want God being everywhere. So at some point in time, our Christian imagination put God back into the church. And specifically in one room of the church. Anybody want to shout out what room that is? The sanctuary. You always know where kids can't go, right, in the church? Besides the really nice kind of of study room with the nice chairs. The sanctuary. What do we tell our kids? Don't run in the sanctuary, right? Because that's where God is. And even some of our brothers and sisters of, of different denominations will actually put God in a little box up in front and keep God there. So we have moved throughout human history with this question, where is God? Where is God? And for many of us, we understand, especially the story of Star Wars, that God would be more in the light than in the darkness. God is where the light is, and where the darkness is, God is not. That's why it's dark. But however, in Jonah, in just the first three verses of this story, we see a very different view. This is what happens. God calls to Jonah and tells Jonah to go to a dark place. Jonah, go to where the darkness is, God says. It's a place called Nineveh. It's a wicked city. It's a dark city. But what does Jonah do? And this is one of the reasons why a lot of commentaries that I read consider Jonah to be a dark comedy. Jonah turns away from God's presence and tries to to flee from God's presence. And where does Jonah go to flee from God's presence? He's going to go to this place called Tarshish, gets on a boat, 
It's going to take him about a year to get there. It takes about a year to get from his port to all the way to, to Spain. Um, he's going to spend a year trying to get away from God. But what does he start doing? He starts going into darkness. He flees the presence of God by going into darkness. The first thing he does, he goes to Joppa. Joppa is a city on the coast. It's down on sea level. It's down from Jerusalem. And it's a city filled with non-Jews. It's an unclean city. It's a dark place. Jonah goes, the first place he goes, he goes to darkness. And then he gets aboard a ship. And on board that ship, our, our English translation doesn't help us very much, but the Hebrew calls us, he goes down into the ship. He goes down into the dark bowels of the ship. He goes down into darkness the second time. And then later on, just a couple verses later, he gets thrown overboard. He goes down into the waters. He goes down into the belly of a fish. And he says words like, I am at the bottom. I am at the pit. Essentially, Jonah is in the deepest, darkest place he could ever be, essentially dead. So in his attempt to escape going to darkness, a place where God wants him to go, a place where he thinks God is, right? Because if he was going to go to Nineveh, he would not be out of God's presence. His whole thing is, i got to get out of God's presence. So he doesn't go to the darkness, but he finds himself in the darkness. And then he finds that that is the very place where God is. God's not in the light in this moment of time in the story. God's in the darkness with Jonah. And the amazing thing is that this petulant prophet actually knows better. He knows better. And that's kind of the twist, that's the dark comedy of Jonah, that he knows better. To escape, he goes to where God actually is. And this is where I think this story starts out very powerfully for you and I. So no matter what happens in our life, whether we try to escape God's presence or whether life happens to us in such a way where we feel like God isn't there, when we believe that light is where God is and we believe that dark, the dark places of our lives is where God is absent, the story of Jonah, these first three vo- verses tell us that God is in the darkness too. God is in those dark places, those places when we feel dead, in the bottom, in the pit. We can't see our hand in front of our face, and we wonder what the next thing is going to happen. Jonah teaches us that there isn't anywhere we can go, not even in the darkness, where God isn't already there. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. A word that comes to us and guides us and leads us. Help us over these next several weeks learn more about who we are and who you are. That we would know that there is no place we can run.
that there isn't anything that can happen to us that, that moves us into the deepest, darkest places of our lives where we can be away from you. You're with us. Give us that assurance. Help us have the kind of faith that leans even in those tough times, that leans into you and your love, that you continue to help us know who we are and whose we are, that we're able to live in confidence knowing that you have called us your own. Lord God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus.